Bienvenidos. Welcome to episode 20 of the Jacobin Sports Show. I am Matthew Miranda, joined as always by the ineffable Jonah Birch. You can follow us at Jacobin Sports or email us at jacobinsports at gmail.com. Jonah, how are you today? You know, I'm doing all right. Uh, by the way, is this episode 20 or episode 21? I, I, you know, you lose track at, at some point. They're like the, the days of our lives, you know? I have certain, um, like, OCD stuff that centers around numbers. So I am unusually confident that it's episode 20. Okay, okay, <laughs> um, good. And I like that. All the haters, all those who said it'll, it'll, it'll never last 20 episodes, they are now buried under our floorboards as we soar into the stratosphere. So 20 episodes feels good. And to mark the special occasion of our 20th episode, in today's episode, we will find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. This is the real world, according to Jackman Sports. We're going to get real about the NBA. We're going to get real about what's happening with Naomi Osaka in the world of women's tennis. We're going to get real about everything today. And what better way to get into reality than through the prism of Kyrie Irving. Hey. You may or may not be aware, um, there have been a number of fan line steppings in these playoffs so far in, a, in almost every series. In the Knicks-Hawks series already, Trey Young has um, been spit on and Emmanuel quickly had a beer poured on him in New York. How did that uh, happen, West? by the way? Can you can you just explain? A Knicks fan threw a beer at Emmanuel quickly? Or they, they were throwing assume, it yeah, at a Hawks fan? It has to be an, an Atlanta fan in disguise. Because <laughs> um, yeah. New Yorkers would never do such a thing. Um, Russell Westbrook had popcorn on thrown, thrown on him when he was leaving, I think, game three against the 76ers. Maybe game two. Sorry, game two. But by far the, the most... I don't even know what the word is for it. The most extra of all of the incidents um, took place at Boston uh, when the Brooklyn Nets played game four uh, against the Boston Celtics, and the Nets won to go up three to one in the series. And I just, as we get into this conversation and in today's special Keeping It Real, I want Jonah to, to, I want to talk about this, and I want to come at the experience that I had with it in the actual moment, because I think it is informative um, for this event in like American culture in general. So I was not watching the game, and I was on Twitter later that night, and I saw a, lo- a whole trending maelstrom about how Kyrie Irving stomped on the Celtics logo after game four, and a fan threw a bottle at him, and like I'm picturing just this dramatic, you know, and, and I and I, I took me a, a few hours to watch the clip. Right. And I'm very I'm very reminded and I, I think I don't know where, where we're gonna come on this because I am not a Celtic fan and you are. I have no affiliation with Boston and you do. But I was reminded just thinking of the tweets around the incident and this idea and I keep seeing it repeated today that Kyrie stomped the logo, how offensive and I keep thinking of Amy Cooper, who was the woman in Central Park a year ago, who was with her dog, and her dog was loose, and a, a black man, a bird watcher named Christian Cooper, no relation, asked her to put the dog on a leash, and she ended up calling 911 and claiming that uh, an African-American man was being aggressive and threatening her, and she started 
raising her voice as if she was in imminent danger, but he's recording the whole thing, and she's not. And she ends up being charged um, with making a false 911 call. And obviously there's this whole tradition of, of incorrect inflammatory language around what black people do in this country. I see Kyrie Irving, when I finally see what happened, I, I thought it was like when Terrell Owens ran out to the Dallas Star at midfield and like spiked the ball and made like a whole thing of it. Kyrie, the game ends, his teammates are coming around him, he like wipes, drags his foot across the logo's face, and then they walk off. This cartoon logo that gets stepped on has been stepped on millions of times in history. Where do you stand on all this, Jonah? Because well, to me, it I mean, seems like look, this uh, is, you know, of insanity. course, insanity. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I, I obviously, I, I don't really give a fuck about Kyrie Irving stomping on the logo or whatever, and I, that's a complete red herring here. And whatever motive motivated that twenty-one-year-old kid to throw a water bottle, Kyrie? I, I mean, it's absurd, you know. And there's no justification. And obviously. You know, I saw people trying to equate the two things on Twitter, and that's ridiculous, you know? And then some people tried to walk it back. I actually thought that um, Kevin Durant had a, a good take after the game that, much like Jalen Brown's good take before the game, very good take, I thought, was was framed in a pretty distorted way by ESPN, by the the whatever, the aggregator websites, you know, that were, that were click hunting. Uh, and, um, you know, I, it's absurd. And it's, it's honestly too bad. Uh, it's too bad. It's ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous, both obviously in that you can't equate those things. It's ridiculous in that, you know, obviously for people who are Celtics fans, you feel like you have to answer for people who act like that. And that's absurd. Right. Mm -hmm. And it also is a ridiculous way to uh, to start having conversations about very important, larger issues that have nothing to do with Kyrie Irving, obviously. Right. I mean, Kyrie Irving is a sensitive soul. You know, he's a guy who obviously, you know, he in the heat of the moment when he was on the Celtics at, at this start of the season, you know, he's giving a speech and he says, I'm going to come back. And then the season goes disastrously. And he was having a tough time with that. And a lot of other people on the Celtics were having a tough time with that. And he did things, uh, you know, that pissed a lot of people in Boston off during the season. People felt like he threw his teammates uh, under the bus, you know, that he kind of quit on the team in the playoffs, that it was by midseason after saying, I'm going to stay looking for this exit all of which is true, you know. And and people gave him, as a result in Boston, the Roger Clemens treatment all year, right? I mean, the same way that when Roger Clemens came back in the late 90s, as his wife said later, when he was at Fenway Park, you know, the, the fans are booing him, and she said they treated him worse than Hitler, right? And it was almost the exact same stuff, right? Like, famously... In the 99 playoffs against the Yankees, he got knocked out early. They did the where is, where is Roger chant, and that became the template for the where is Kyrie chant. And, I, you know, he's upset, and he's right. He's like, look, it's, it's, this is just a game. It's good to be passionate about basketball. I mean, this is kind of what KD was saying. But there's got to be lines and limits, and you have to understand it's bigger than you, know, than, than you and, and just your feelings, all of which is true.
And I think Kyrie was very, you know, he was upset. And that is, I mean, you know, so after the game, when the Knicks kicked the shit out of my Celtics, David. Uh, when he was, the fans were clearly trying to get it in his head. There was a feeling that they had in game three. They were trying to do it again in game four. So he's basically going, fuck you. And then this guy throws this water bottle at him. And it was just like, you know, to be honest, my first thought is, is this a crisis actor? You know, like, I mean, that's a joke, but I, what, what, a, what a piece of shit. You know, this kid from Braintree outside of Boston. And that's ridiculous. The best thing that could come out of it, honestly, just in terms of thinking, there are discussions about racism and Boston that need to happen, about racism in sports, you know, obviously about racism and society. And about fan behavior at sporting events, all of which are important discussions, none of which should necessarily be framed around Kyrie Irving, right? I mean, that is not a really a helpful way, I, I think, to begin them. Just to say it, and I say that not because I'm trying to abdicate the discussion, but because I think it ends up, and this was part of what Jalen Brown was trying to say, the, the conversations get subsumed into people like lobbing shit around on Twitter you know, about a basketball mm -hmm. game and their favorite basketball player and who likes what basketball team. I'm not so sure. I, I, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not saying don't have the discussion. I'm saying we have to have the discussion. I'm just not sure that's the most helpful way to, to begin that conversation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. Um, so there, there's, there's natural heat and light around the story of like Kyrie going back to Boston to begin with. Yeah. Um, as we've seen, and, and I think as we've seen this, as I just, as the lead in show, like, it's not like there's been six months of, of fan player bliss and this shocking incident has like rocked us out of our comfort zone. Like right. it's happening repeatedly. I think it's highlighted because Boston more than Philadelphia, more than, um, you know, certainly even, even New York, I would say there is no East, I mean, there's no media hotbed for, ah, look, racism, more than Boston. Um, yeah. And I so do we, think, yeah, yeah. you know, go ahead. Because that's an important conversation to have. And I, to be honest, I know I've said this before. I, I really do want us to devote a show. I would love to do a show on racism in Boston and Celtics. And there's an important history there that has to do not just with the sports franchise. There's a history around... I mean, the history of busing in the 70s, right? I mean, there, mm -hmm. this is, there's a larger context to this. Boston is a quarter black. It's a city that is one quarter black, right? It's actually, at this point, by 2010, it was a mostly, a majority non-white city. The demographics have shifted. And there's a whole historical background here. So the busing in the 70s and a legacy of incredible racist violence that has to do with school integration in one of... Certainly, historically, one of the most segregated, it feels segregated if you grow up there. And I grew up in what at the time was one of the more integrated neighborhoods in Boston, Jamaica Plain, which was, which was largely Dominican and Puerto Rican when I was growing up there, but still had some of the remnants of kind of it. It had been a, an old Irish neighborhood. And um, anyway, it was so, you know, it's very segregated by neighborhood, historically, very parochial, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that history of busing. There's also a history in Boston of conflict over racism. And I'm not sure people understand that history either, just to say, because just as much as there's been racism, there's been resistance to it. I mean, people should know about Mel King and, you know, the, the Rainbow Coalition 
and his run mm-hmm. for mayor in 83 and what that represented, you know, and some of the, I mean, there were major fights, even on the Boston City Council in the 90s and the 2000s. There were city council people who were from the left, like Chuck Turner in particular, the late Chuck Turner, someone I think of who represented, you know, our neighborhood growing up. So there's a history there of conflict and uh, and fights over racism that, I, you know, it just is a good opportunity to educate people, to be honest about that, I guess. If that's the, that's, that would be the best thing to come out of that, they, that people would learn something larger because it's a story not just of Boston, but of America. Again, I'm not saying that to say, like, oh, don't talk about racism in Boston, but I, I'm saying there's a larger picture here. I also think, to be honest, like part of what we have to understand about Boston is that, so it is today maybe the most liberal big city in America, right? It's the third most densely populated city in the country. It's a, I, like I said, it's about, you know, it's right about 50-50 white, non-white. And Trump did not win a precinct there. I mean, Eastern Massachusetts as a whole, you know, it's a, has a large immigrant population and it really is, it's basically the most liberal area, I would say, in the country. You look at you know, the politics of, of uh, you know, Massachusetts and of Boston in general. My father's congressman, he lives now in a neighborhood called Roxbury. His congresswoman mm. is Ayanna Presley from the squad. You know, mm. it's like Markey and Warren are the senators. And there's not, the, the Democrats have super majorities in both houses of the state legislature. I think there needs to be some discussion about the limits of, let's say, a kind of self-congratulatory liberal anti-racism that does not get at the root of what are some pretty profound inequalities in Boston and inside. And in a lot of ways, a lot of the economic development in mean, Boston is much wealthier than it was 30 years ago, have not, have just, a lot of those inequalities have gotten worse, not better, let's say, even as the politics of Boston are changing. I mean, it is no longer the Boston, it's true, of Louise Day Hicks, and Jimmy Kelly and the anti-busing riots and old colony, you know, housing project, the, the white, the Southie housing project, and, you know, a center for very poor Irish Catholics, it, you know, and a center of anti-busing sentiment. It, it's, it's a different kind of city. It's much wealthier. It's more gentrified. It's more racially diverse, but it's also in a lot of ways a more unequal city. And, and that is part of, I think, what Jalen Brown in his comments before the game was trying to get at. There's a larger discussion to have here that is more, you know, in some ways, I mean, there's something bigger to say. And the same way, and again, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to say don't single Boston out. That's not my point here. But like Brooklyn is not the Brooklyn that voted for Rudy Giuliani for mayor in 1997. It isn't. New York City is not the, the New York City that voted Giuliani in. In 93, after there was a racist white cop riot, which is what pre against David Dinkins, that's what mm-hmm. preceded that election. That does not mean that New York City does not, doesn't have issues of racial inequality to address, right? Just because it's not, you know, Howard Beach, that's not where or the Crown or Crown Heights in 91, because the history is different now, the, the context is different, doesn't mean there, you know, there, we, we have to get past that like very narrow, kind of official liberal diversity narrative or the kind of liberal anti-racism that can be very self-congratulatory, but is not addressing these larger issues of inequality. And in some ways, you know, I, I worry that 
that that's the kind of thing that will get lost in this. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yes. I mean, let's talk about, you know, racist fans and sporting events and God, the demographics of who sits in the stands in any stadium in this country in Boston mm-hmm. is not necessarily, you know, it's mm-hmm. there's there's a particular demographic. Of course, that's true. And so let's talk about fan behavior and let's also have those larger conversations, I guess, is my point. And if we can get past the just the, you know, did Kyrie Irving stomp on the lo- logo and then is that why this fan threw this bottle at him and what did either of those and we could talk about those larger issues. In some ways, that would be uh, uh, the most productive thing to come out of it. Then there's a whole conversation to be had about the Celtics and what they represent culturally and the popular consciousness. You know, uh, that again is more complicated. I mean, in some ways, in the 60s, the Celtics were at odds with Boston. Bill Russell was like, I identify with the Celtics, not with Boston, right? Mm-hmm. When they had the, the, were making him the first black head coach and they had the first black starting five, so it's a, a more, um, there's layers of complexity here, I would say, that are worth exploring, I guess. Is, yeah. yeah. Sorry to go layer. on a whole rant, but I, you know, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed that very much. Yeah. We, uh, we, maybe we'll do that, that, that episode you proposed sooner than later. Yeah, let's do it. Fire there. I like that. Thanks. Yeah, let's have that conversation. I mean, also, there is something to say just about fan behavior at sporting events. I think it's uh, a more narrow, limited conversation, right? Uh, but it's that's important too. And yeah, people are, as they say, out of pocket right now, you know, and uh, including people <laughs> in, in Boston. Yeah. Uh, a sad layer to all this, I think, is the really, I think, it's the antiquated notion that some people have that their identity with, with the team is, is actually a part of their fundamental selves and losing sight of the fact that like, like, so this kid or this, this young man, um, this dude, perhaps, perhaps this dude, perhaps overinflated his notion of what the team is actually is in real life. Um, and I, I'm always sad when this happens with fans, because I think what your team means to you is, is like personal to everybody. And like, it can be whatever it is, like whatever the Celtics may mean to, all 20,000 people in the stands, it's going to be 20,000 different things, and that's cool. And if you're someone who, like, it's really, like, integral to your existence, that's cool. However, you should never lose sight of the fact that, like, to the team, you are Greece, like, in their wheels. Like, that's all that you are. If profits go up, no matter what happens, if profits go up, the owner gets richer, management gets richer, the players get richer, and you as the fan get nothing. There's no... Ticket reduction, there's no subsidies towards, you know, parking or towards investment in the communities where you and your other fans come from, you're left out. If the team suffers and loses money, the owner fires people, management trades anybody who's making money, the players leave for better opportunities, and you as a fan get nothing. Like, you have to see where your place is in all of this. I have been wondering, like, when I when I looked over the, the list that I could remember of, okay, it happened to Kyrie, it happened to Westbrook. It happened to Trey Young. It happened to quickly. I want to know if you think it's a coincidence or perhaps beer muscles that every single player who was targeted is 6'3 or shorter in a league where the average player is like 6'7 or taller. Am I on to something or is that just a wild coincidence? Yeah, I did not even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is anti-short guy oppression. Is that? 
Um, it's isms we I, haven't I, even considered, Jonah. <laughs> I, by the way, what do you think was happening in Washington when the dude ran out on the court? I, I didn't even think. I forgot about that was, one. Yes. Um, I mean, then there's the Utah fans who, I mean, John Morant's father, what yes, they said, yes. what he said they were saying to him. Mm-hmm. Of course, I, you know, which was, do you, did you hear what he said? They. Oh, I heard that they, it was racist things. I didn't hear any specifics about what they were. Apparently, he said that the fans that one of the fans yelled something like, "I'll put five cents in your back and you'll dance." Oh, something I, along. Yes, the I did see that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Okay, but so DC, what the what was happening in DC when this guy ran ran out on the court? So I honestly think he was hoping to get was expecting to get caught, and just wanted the spectacle of I gave it a shot, because. Was he running to Dwight Howard? Dwight Howard was near him. I think Dwight Howard kind of walked up to him and was just looking at him. Like, Dwight, Dwight is. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing, dude? There's a there's a there's a part in the old uh, Tim Burton Batman movie where Bruce Wayne is is talking to the Joker and um, as Bruce Wayne and he's telling him about he knew this guy who like was the kind of guy who couldn't hear the train. Until it was, you know, like right on top of him. And I feel like Dwight Howard is that kind of person. Like someone has just run onto the court illegally. And I'm all for like post-game fans, you know, taking down the space. But like there's not there's nothing good from you deciding to run on the court. And Dwight Howard is literally not Dwight Howard does not just walk toward the incident. He literally like leans down, like 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 God gave Dwight Howard the gift of like you're seven feet tall, like you're, you're pretty safe from the ground. And not only does Howard walk up to this incident, but he literally, like, bends down to, like, have a conversation with the guy while he's being, like, arrested. I don't know, man. I, 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 Can I? There's more and more of these incidents. I'm not even remembering all of them. There's so many. I don't remember there ever being this many. This is, this is a, a, a genuine question. Do you think things are worse, actually, than they used to be? So we've had these incidents... Five days in a row. And, I, you know, or whatever. I have five, yeah. So it, it seems like people are really losing their mind and that maybe it has something to do with COVID, fans back in the stadium. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, again, what KD sort of implied in his yeah. comments. after. Uh, I, now, I think back, and I just listened to a podcast with the Celtics great and now announcer Cedric Maxwell that he did with Bob McAdoo, who we talked about not long, yes. long, long ago, who is his best friend in, in the NBA, apparently. They, were, they lived together when McAdoo was briefly on the Celtics. Mm. And some of the stuff they were describing in the 70s and the 80s, you're just like, okay, holy shit, that sounds, that sounds even worse. And look, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, you know, ML Carr got a beer thrown off his head at, at a Lakers game. Right, you know, it, it, when he was playing the, we were, the Celtics were playing the Lakers years ago. I remember incidents of people going into the stands in the seventies or the early eighties, mm-hmm. and obviously that's way before the malice in the palace, which was what two thousand five or yes. whatever. Yeah, I, I, I'm just wondering if things are actually worse right now, or if our perception of them has just changed. I am currently inclined to think that this is symptomatic of COVID because. I think for a long time, like for like you were saying, I'm always surprised how many clips you can find online from games, 80s, even early 90s. There's a, a game in Portland where Vernon Maxwell goes up 
into the stands and confronts a fan. Um, there have been other incidents of it. I think I, I'm inclined at the moment to suspect this is a lot of people in an enormous crowd for the first time in a while. You have the anonymity of crowd that, that hasn't been a thing for a long time in a lot of places. I'm inclined to think that's why all this seems to be happening all at once. My brain is also whispering to me like some idea about the last few years with Trump and people feeling perhaps more emboldened to go against convention. But like that's that's all a, a first thought kind of brainstorm thing. My main my main suspect would be it's it's COVID. It's people being able to disappear into a crowd for a bit and that you wouldn't see this kind of rate of line stepping next season. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does feel a bit like a fever dream right now. And yeah. you're just like... It's all very... Yeah, it's weird. And, you know, of course, there's going to be discussions about alcohol and how much is alcohol fueling this, you mm-hmm. know. As a... Whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish in your dickhead brain, yeah? <laughs> there's... You're not going to... you're. It's not going to work. Like, no. you're not going to get away with it at nope. an NBA stadium, you know... Throwing a water bottle at someone today. That is not, that's not going to work out for you. Yeah. Which I think is encouraging. I do think that when ML Carr gets hit in the head, whatever you think of how, you know, parochialism and fragmentation may have multiplied, like the fact that you could, you could probably get away with it more back in the day um, out of camaraderie or or whatever, or or Omerta, and now you can't, is probably a good thing. But on the whole, it would be nice to not have to spend 20 minutes. 30 minutes talking about this because it's so ubiquitous right now. Like it's everywhere. Yeah, sure. Kind of relating to this. uh, uh, We'll jump back and talk about the playoffs in a little bit, but I think this ties in with what we're talking about now. Um, So there's a big story coming out of women's tennis right now with Naomi Osaka, who played at the French Open. She won her first round match after, I believe, she had announced that she would uh, not be speaking to the media for the benefit of her mental health. The response to that was all four Grand Slams putting out a statement saying that they would ban her um, from participating in uh, the French Open, Wimbledon, U.S. Open, and Australian Open if she held to her guns, which earned enormous backlash from the public against tennis. And Osaka has now withdrawn from the French Open. And I want to read to you, Jonah, um, something that our friend Louisa Thomas, who was our guest last week, wrote about in The New Yorker. Um, about this because I think it relates also to the what we just talked about with basketball where I think sometimes these discussions happen without people really under like really being authentic about what it is that we're talking about and so I think when with if you have, and if you casually see athlete refuses to do press conference some people will be inclined towards like oh look at these spoiled million but I want to point out what Louisa Thomas um, who covers tennis and has played her, uh, herself, uh, what she had to say about press conferences in relation to this. Um, so she yeah. wrote uh, in the last maybe 24 hours for The New Yorker, she wrote, quote, press conferences as a rule are tedious and outdated. Nobody really likes them. Not reporters who would prefer to speak to athletes privately and at length and not players who are asked the same questions repeatedly, sometimes by people whose main motivation is to encourage controversy. Press conferences can seem particularly pointless to players who don't need the press to promote themselves or reach their fans, which they can do more efficiently and perhaps more effectively through social media. The press, particularly at the Grand Slams, can include people who are not well-versed in tennis, tabloid reporters, and not infrequently, 
people who ask ham-handed and offensive questions, particularly of black women. Just the other day, a reporter who wanted to get a quote from the 17-year-old star Coco Gauff about the possibility of playing Serena Williams began by saying, quote, you are often compared to the Williams sisters. Maybe it's because you're black. But I guess it's because you're talented and maybe American too, end quote. So I think an excellent point that Thomas is raising there that applies to um, Kyrie and all these discussions of fan behavior is that it's important not to let uh, the labels or in the case of the, the logo symbols like obfuscate the fact that we're, we're talking about very we're talking about parts of people's real life everyday lived experiences Naomi Osaka has talked about her battles with depression um, Naomi Osaka Thomas wrote in her piece is the broke her own record last year for being the highest earning uh, female athlete in one in one year she earned over 50 million last year um I feel like, you know, Marshall McLuhan wrote about this, that the invention of every single medium has one of four effects on other mediums, one of which is it renders something obsolete. And I think with ubiquity of social media and just there's so much access and there's so much to sell that people are buying, we don't need press conferences. We're not going to learn anything from Osaka at a press conference. We're not really going to learn anything, especially if, you know, the athlete is anxious and uncomfortable being there and doesn't feel um even before the response from from tennis didn't feel comfortable being in that place and now has to feel less comfortable but i feel like maybe this is a, a generational divide or a, a or, or oh. some kind of sensibility divide but like i would rather have these athletes left alone than than someone acting like i need osaka to to spit cliches at a press conference when the reality is the sport needs her face at a press conference so they have something to sell i mean i first of all the whole post-game press conference thing seems to me uh, the ultimate example of business sense triumphing over any anything else yeah. by the way great following up your borges with some marshall McLuhan references i, I you know <laughs> <laughs> you're really bringing out the big guns. Yeah, so the reason they have these people out here, you know, from coming out and answering questions from reporters is not to enhance the sports journalism, not to improve it, you know. It's there there's something about access, right? The 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 networks are all like, look, we're paying a lot of money for this, you know, and we if we're going to sell you, we want access, 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 right? Mm -hmm. Those press conferences, I mean, the question you just asked, God, it makes me think of, uh, did you ever see the clip of a few years ago of Serena being asked about Venus and something about Venus, comparisons to Venus? And she goes, uh, another Venus question? Uh, you know. No, I did not. I, they're, they're so cringy and repetitive and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they don't overwhelmingly they're just like uh, to be honest i even if i start watching post game pre press conferences i have to turn them off because yeah. they're so awkward right they are. everything is awkward and by the way i'm pretty sure that most reporters sports journalists actually don't like that you know that this kind of venue for conducting their interviews right i mean there's pressure on them as well right yeah. when you ask a dumbass question the world remembers it on youtube 
I remember it 10 years later because it's on YouTube. And you can go find clips, you know, of NBA stars respond to, you know, ridiculous questions from reporters. Uh, it can't be a good venue to get, have an, a good discussion with people. And so it's all about the networks and what the networks can sell. And to be honest, you know, I'm just shocked that the French Open let it get to this point where I, of course, wouldn't they rather have Naomi Osaka playing in the in tournament, even if she's not going to answer questions after her, than this? But they they really stuck to their guns, huh? They were like, we're going to find you and we might kick you out, basically, unless you agree to do these these um, you know, post-match pressers. And, and I, you know, I, I think that's absurd, obviously. Now, where there may be a generational difference, I think people older than us are going to be like, look, if you're a great tennis, if you're a great athlete, you know, you don't withdraw from a major tournament. And, but who are we? You know, who are we to say what, what she can or can't do? I do think that will be the attitude of the older sports fan. Mm-hmm. In terms of the media access, though, I don't think anyone is going to care, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. do you think anyone really gives a shit? I don't think tennis fans probably do. Not really. I, yeah. I, Cause like you're saying, um, and I think of it all the time when I hate this in basketball, the like literally the second the game ends, a player has to put on, put on a pair of headphones and spout some cliches, do an interview. Like you don't, but on the human level of like, I hate it, especially somebody wins a title. They don't have five seconds to process everything before they're being asked to articulate what it means which they can't do, um, understandably. Um, did you see yeah. the Did you see the response from the head of the French Open? I cannot and will not try to pronounce his name. Um, but send it to me. I you know I didn't even no I didn't. It's uh. You know what? I don't want to brag, but my French pronunciation is. I'm saying mediocre. You know. No 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 on, on, no it's not. I'm telling you it's not. It's uh, G I L L E S. Is it just Gills? Yeah, he, yeah. And then M-O-R-E-T-T-O-N. So, so he's the president of the French Tennis Federation. So after they object to Osaka refusing to do press conferences, they announce that they're having a press conference to address it. The media shows up. He reads from a statement and then announces there will be no questions and leaves. That's hilarious. That's oh, man. <laughs> that is this me. like... The, the trolling <laughs> of all time. This is like high performance <laughs> art, like at its best. I could not believe that. Um, <laughs> amazing, amazing. Oh, my amazing. God. That's amazing. Right? You're, you're saying uh, there's there's a level of, uh, uh, let's say, hypocrisy here that feels uh, almost over the top. There are words, you know, there are words that come to mind, though. and that is one of them. Certainly. Um, That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sucks. It sucks that she's not going to be in this tournament, right? Yeah, really? And uh, huh? I love the action by her, though. I love because I love I love them trying to bully her basically into yeah. in action and her action specifically show. And this is this is a bold action by her. Like, I can't remember an athlete at least in an individual sport like that, as certainly one of her prominence withdrawing from a major because sure. she's showing, and now it leaves them in the position of, you know what? You got what you wanted. Like, okay, 
sure, we, we can't we don't get to hear her get asked offensive questions. We also don't get to see her play. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. So, you know, her her statement about it was great. And it was, it was uh yeah. it, she looked so good coming out of that, and they looked so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's also clear to me, you know, and again, there's a there's a larger discussion to be had that it, it's not just about media and media and sports and the relationship between sports media and business and the, the business of sports, but also is about mental health. And she's basically like, I need some time away from, mm-hmm. you know, the sport and the spectacle. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, again, you know, it's something that lots of people can identify with and who can blame her? You know, who, uh, Absolutely. who are we for that? The other thing is that I don't know if you saw today, but the number three ranked player hurt herself during, during the press conference. What? She, she, yes, yes, yep. What happened? Uh, she had to withdraw because she hurt her ankle. Uh, let me look it up. Uh, um, she hurt her the ankle and then released a statement. will not stop with this. <laughs> she uh, hurt her ankle at the press conference? During media availability. After winning during her post-match media availability, she hurt her ankle. I swear to God, I am not making that up. I have to find this. Let's open up ESPN.com. Oh my God! Uh, I know. Don't talk about hypocrisy. I'm I'm going to open ESPN.com to check this story. But I, yeah, okay. Again, I'm I'm not going to be able uh, to uh, pronounce this name, and this just shows. This is why we need like tennis. We need to do a tennis show and we can get like, uh, you know, Louisa and some other tennis experts here so that I, you know, we can pronounce a name besides, you know, Serena Williams and Roger Federer or whatever, <laughs> you know, Petra Vitova, Vitova, okay. uh, the, uh, I think is one Wimbledon twice. And uh, she said, it's with great disappointment that I announced my withdrawal from Roland Garros. So she had just won a first round victory over Greet Minen. And she said, during my post-match press requirements on Sunday, oh, this is two days ago, I fell and hurt my ankle. Unfortunately, after an MRI and with much, and much discussion with my team, I have made the tough decision that it would be unwise to play on. It's incredibly bad luck, but I will stay strong and do my best to, to recover in time for the grass court season. She means Wimbledon. Now, There's you know, no way that's real. There's no way that's real. And, no and it's one hundred percent real. I, it's it that sucks. Again, I, I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing at her. Um, I just can't believe it's just the situation. Yeah, and talk about a top notch troll. I mean, I'm saying it would be even better if this was if that wasn't true and she had heard it during the match and she was just like, let's say I heard it. I want the thirty I, you know, for thirty in like ten years where we find out <laughs> that this was all engineered. That's amazing. Uh, That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but but so what you know it's just going to be a less uh, obviously a less entertaining yeah. um you know it's going to be a less entertaining tournament right i mean mm-hmm. you know and it that sucks for people who whatever you know mm-hmm. are, are watching and and want to watch i hope let, let me say this is my dream my dream is that somehow some way this forces this leads to the nba and Major League Baseball getting rid, and I guess hockey too, although it, getting rid of the in-game interviews oh, with yes. uh, you yes. know, team coaches, which are just the absolute worst thing in the world, which I'm 100% with Greg Popovich. Abolish them. 
Yep. It's so stupid and offensive and useless. And mm-hmm. anyway, that's yeah. that is that is my hope out of out of all of this. She's great. Naomi Osaka is great. You know, yes. Can't help but root for her. Yeah. Speaking of hopes, the Lakers and Phoenix Suns find themselves in a game five, tied two to two, in this kind of series of attrition where Chris Paul has basically lost his shoulder and now Anthony Davis injured his groin in game four. Um, A very dramatic series, a very back and forth series. Um, Your thoughts or feelings on where this might be headed, Jonah? I am, I genuinely, I'm sorry that, that Anthony Davis is hurt. That sucks. I am glad that Chris Paul came back and gave the world a big middle finger. He did. I mean, I wasn't, you know, so apparently coach Monty Williams was like, don't, don't play in this game. You're not healthy. And it's just gonna, and he said, no, I'm going to play. And he just fucking dominated. Mm-hmm. And it was a wonderful, wonderful thing to, to, mm-hmm. to watch. I, I guess my question to you is, will this change the narrative? If they win this series and he keeps playing, will this change the narrative around Chris Paul in the playoffs? No. Because people will say the Lakers were banged up. Yep. And there you go. And 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 it'll hurt him. It'll hurt him, I think, because he will have beaten a banged up Laker team in the first round. If this is the conference finals, it has more of this romantic sense of like, oh my god, like all these teams are just trying to survive and Paul managed to get there. But because it's happening in the first round and the Lakers are hurt and have been hurt for so long, I think th- I think the Lakers are in a perfect position for them of if they win, oh my God, LeBron is so great, and Lakers. And if they lose, ah, well, they were banged up. So I don't think it does anything to his narrative. That's too bad. Sadly, you know whether that's fair or not, I don't think it does. I mean, you know, there. So there are some Suns players who have really looked good. I mean, DeAndre Ayton has looked really good in this series, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Jay Crowder had a, a really good game. Who am I forgetting? I'm forgetting someone who else who is. Uh, Booker's been up and down. Um, Cameron Payne had some nice moments when Paul Cameron was Payne has had banged some up nice more. Moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Do you feel like, I, and we should have a Lakers fan on just to answer this question: Is Alex Caruso, if AD is out, is Alex Caruso the second best player on the Lakers? <laughs> that's a good question. That, um, that is, it one hundred percent might be true. It totally could be true. You know, it could be. It could be. I really thought after Game Three, Phoenix was done. The Lakers were up yeah. two to one. Paul was hurt. They had taken back home court. I felt very badly for them. I felt like, wow, they had. I was actually going to write a piece about, like, I did write a piece. I'm sorry for, um, for fansided about. You know, you you come so far, and you know all these things have to go right for Phoenix to be where they were, and then two body parts go wrong. You know, and 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 everything is now the narrative is all done. I'm impressed by them. I really wish the series had they had both stayed healthy because I think it would have been an incredible series seeing them both at full strength. But I think if if Davis, I mean, groin injuries don't tend to like just casually get better. Like you have to rest. And even if they got out of this series, there's there's three more rounds left. I don't. I hate always saying this because of the number of times LeBron will surprise you, but like. I really can't see the Lakers. I don't know. I can't see it. But I've said that before. Yeah. I, the question is, 
I mean, and, and I'm not sure LeBron is 100% either. Yeah, he's not. Can he, he definitely isn't, right? He's I mean, so no to way. expect him to put up, to be, you know, Le- LeBron on the Cavs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, 15 years ago, putting up 50, you know, points when they, it, it might be, it might be too much in this series, right? And it's, this Phoenix team is no joke, obviously. So Yeah, and I think uh, also it's the fact that, Unlike Miami and unlike his second stint in Cleveland, there there's no third star, and I think that matters. Yep. If this was LeBron in Miami and um, you know it was just him and Bosh, or if it was just him and Love, like you'd still be like, okay, like LeBron doesn't need much to work with, like that's enough. But like you're saying, when your third best player is either Dennis Schroeder or I don't know. Go ahead, say it. Go ahead, say it. I know uh, you want to. Alex Caruso. Um, that break that he ran with LeBron, where he threw the ball off the back backboard, kind of into traffic for that was that was some next level. I was that was, that was can do way, things. That was so impressive, you know. Alex Caruso is the NBA leader of like oh shit, like moments, like constantly, yeah, yeah, constantly. Yep, um, so true. He's doing great things for bald men everywhere. Honestly, you know. Well, Alex Russo. <laughs> I don't know if there's ever been an NBA athlete who looks less like what he is than Alex Caruso. So true. So true. Like when you see John Morant, like you know, jump up, like he he looks like this weightless, spring-loaded, and then you see Alex Caruso like fly through the lane for a dunk. He's inc- he's shockingly athletic. You know, he, he is. He really. It, it, it really, uh, he is like living proof of the bullshitness of junk racial pseudoscience, right? You know, the whole like uh, the decades of, of race biology, they all to prove that, you know, white men can't jump or whatever. He is just really violating all of those, uh, you know, all of that. Yeah, he's a constant shock. Also shocking. The Dallas Mavericks led the Clippers 2-0 in their series, winning the first two in L.A., came home to Dallas, were up 30-11 to in the first quarter. And now we enter Game 5 with the series all even. Luka Doncic is banged up. Kristaps Porzingis is perhaps not quite the messiah that Mark Cuban and the world made him out to be when the Mavericks supposedly, quote-unquote, fleeced the Knicks in that trade. And now here we are. Kawhi's come along, Paul George is looking good, the Clippers have gone small, they've pulled Zubac um, from the starting lineup and instead have inserted, I can't think of his name right now, oh my god, oh, Nicholas Batum. Yeah. And it's worked because Doncic was was picking on uh, Zubac repeatedly. So, I don't know how close you've been following this, Jonah, but Mavs and Clippers, do you think Dallas can still pull this out or do you feel like you had your chance and now the Clippers just have momentum and it's over? Well, I, I mean, it depends on Luka Doncic's health, right? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he's clearly hurt and he hurt himself at some point in game three. And if he is not, obviously they have no shot if he's even a little bit below peak performance. I, I do think um, these have been statement games for Kawhi, obviously. And, uh, you know, and for Paul George, but especially for Kawhi. And, uh, you know, if the Clippers come back and win four straight now, man, NBA narratives can change in a flash, can't they? I, I mean, what evidence, uh, you know, uh, for, for that and how fleeting the, uh, the, the narratives of today are? 
you know, particularly if if Luca is not full strength, it's hard to see Dallas winning another game, right? Isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, like you're saying, I love that it was only. I, I take no personal, despite all the the crap that Nick fans give Porzingis. Like I don't root against him or root for him to fail. It doesn't matter to me. But I do think it's like you're saying a testament to how fast things change. Two years ago, you know, this is oh my god, Luca and KP like the perfect right. pick and roll part, and like they're set for ten years. And now there's been a number of stories this year that Cuban and Porzingis have both commented on publicly about maybe this isn't working. Like maybe already Dallas is is thinking like we got to try to get out of this if we can. Well, but it may not be true, but the fact that there's that much smoke with quotes around the issue two years after the whole world is just fetting the maps for how oh my god what a brilliant move is really interesting. Um, and and if you if you've watched them play, they really. Porzingis has gone from, he might be the the answer to, he seems to be gumming everything up. Luca's better when Porzingis is not there. Their whole offense is better, when Porzingis is not there. Not that he's a, a bust, but just what he needs to do to succeed and, and his game and his strengths and everything don't, seem to meld with, the rest of that roster. And he's, he's on a max deal with no injury protections. Yeah, I mean, two years is a lifetime in NBA terms, right? Well, what yeah. What is he making for the next couple of years? He's at, what, 38? He's due $101 million over the next three years. Oh, he's got three years left on his deal. Three years left, yep. Wow. No okay. medical exemptions. That was the beef with him and the Knicks. They wouldn't. They wanted what Philly had, I think, with Embiid, right. which is they gave him a max, but they, they were to protection, and Porzingis insisted on a full max. Dallas gave it to him while he was recovering from his ACL tear, and here you are. Yeah, I mean uh, that you know it makes you sad given the injury history that he's experienced. Yeah. It's it's hard to see him ever, you know, living up to the potential that people yeah. saw in him, mm-hmm. and the the holes in his game have been so exposed over the last couple of years. He's a he's yeah. just a glorified, you know, he's a stretch five, right? But not a great one. That you know doesn't seem particularly good. You know, pretty much any other facet of the game, and uh, yeah, he. You know, if if they lose badly the next couple of games, I mean, of course, of course, Dallas would like to get out from that contract, right? Like, of yeah. course they would. For who would be the question? But I'm saying, yeah, they might be stuck yeah, with him. That, yeah, they might be, um, or they're gonna have to take something bad back to get rid yeah. of him. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any premonitions about Knicks and Hawks? Atlanta's up three to one. They d- pretty dominated both games. Um, do you feel prepared to talk about this? How prepared are you? I do. Like emotionally, I, I mean, I, you know. Oh, I've been trusted. I've seen too much shit for a an A plus season to get me down because they might lose in the first round. Like I'm not bothered. Well, so let me ask you then, because I saw you subtweeting some Knicks fans was my impression of what's going on. <laughs> who who I've been known to subtweet Knicks fans. <laughs> you know, I, I've done some subtweeting in my day. <laughs> and the the my understanding of was that you felt like people had suddenly they were so high on this team right before the playoffs and now they're like, what's gone wrong? We need to, mm-hmm. you know, massive changes. 
what a disaster. And you're basically like, look, this is this is all a little bit gravy. We had a great season after for the first time. It's I mean, I'm not saying it's over. It's just Julius Randle and RJ Barrett have to be completely different players than they have been, obviously, right? And this Hawks yeah, team the whole team does. Yeah. So it's not just them, you feel like. No, I think I I think I think the biggest problem the Knicks have had in this series is it's not I mean, Randall's play, but he's been defended differently than he ever has been. And I, I think it's reasonable to assume that a player who is the lead option for the first time in his life in the playoffs for the first time is going to struggle, um, especially against a good defensive coach, which Nate McMillan is. I think what's what's hurting the Knicks is I think Atlanta has baited Tom Thibodeau. One of his strengths is like his loyalty, and he really he knows what works, and he, he goes to it over and over and over. But you can take advantage of that with Thibodeau, and I think where Tibbs is suffering in the playoffs and the Knicks are as a result is Atlanta has been able to put so much attention on Randall that they have, I think, pretty quickly kind of psyched the Knicks into running a lot of crap through Derrick Rose. And Rose has responded. Rose has had a great series. He's scored great. He's yeah. shot efficiently. But Rose's, Rose at his best is not the three-point threat or even, I would say, the, the assist creator that Randall is. If you're able to get Randall to start deferring, which he's done. A lot of Randall's moves now, he's not even looking. He's looking to pass. And if you're able to get Rose to be taking a bunch of floaters and pull-ups, which he's been doing and he has been hitting, but that's not going to win against a team that has Trey Young hitting threes and Bogdanovich hitting threes and Gallinari has been hot the last few days and Kevin Herter, Herter like you, you they've baited the Knicks into becoming more of like a Derrick Rose mid-range team in part out of necessity because Randall cannot hit anything but I also think and I know this will start fires back in Nick Nation but like it really is getting weird that in a series where you are being killed by Trey Young absolutely killed by him you have a player on your roster who has had success against him in the past not only defending him but also posting him up making him work on the other end a player who is perfect to chase around a guy like Bogdanovich and Frank Nilekina cannot get more than 20 seconds in a game and I understand the normal you know convention of like if you're not one of our nine best players you're not going to play but we've seen after four games that no one that you're Trey Young does no work on defense. None. He stands next to Reggie Bullock, talks shit to him, and then comes up court and scores. Frank Dalekina can't do worse than that. See, I thought you were gonna say Alfred Payton, but I, you know, I'm glad you <laughs> <laughs> I think Alfred's in a good place. We talked about mental health earlier. I think Alfred's in a good place right now. I think Alfred can stay in that good place right now. Okay, let me ask you this, because part of what's happening is that maybe we've been underestimating this Hawks team. I, I feel like a little bit. Maybe because this Hawks team hasn't existed. They, they, they haven't had not, their full right. roster all year. So let me say that I've underestimated Trey Young and what he's capable of doing, right? You a lot know? of people have. Yeah, a lot of people have. Uh, this is a little bit of a coming out party for him. Yep. Depending yep. on what's happened, you know, and I, I'm not, as opposed to the Celtics next series, I, I don't think this series is like, over, over, right? You know, yeah, 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 yeah. There is some world in which the Knicks could totally come back. It's not like these games 
have been just like complete Hawks dominance from beginning to end, you know, except for one Jason Tatum 50 point, you know, explosion or something, you know, but if Atlanta plays like this going forward, are they, I don't know, you know, maybe it's hard to see them getting out of the Eastern conference, but can they hang? you know, going forward in, in these playoffs, I guess is the way. They can I, this year because if Embiid's knee injury turns out to be anything of consequence, which right. he had to leave, yeah. then yeah, if Atlanta plays the Sixers and Embiid is out, yeah, yeah they, they can absolutely beat them and give them trouble. Um, I don't sure. see them taking out Brooklyn or Milwaukee, right. but they're, they're I think they are better than people realize. I think especially the Nate McMillan Hawks are much better than, than people saw much of the year. Yep. I think Trey Young does get slept on by people. But I think, you know, remember all the excitement around the Bucks when they thought they had signed um, Bogdan Bogdanovich, and then yeah. it turned out they, like, violate. I mean, I can't imagine that team with him even. Clint Capella's been great. They're a good team. They're a stacked team. Um, we'll see what happens, but they are absolutely, like, a, a legit quality team. Um, I, I really like Clint Capella. Like, I like his game. I, you know. Ah. I can't like him anymore. I used to like him. Now I can't like him. He's <laughs> just like good. overtly. He's just overtly talking shit now about the Knicks, like to the press. Yeah, he made comments cool. today to Steve Popper and Newsday that just like riled up my my reptilian brain. So yeah, yes, yeah. if I step outside of my current reality, I agree with you on Clint Capella completely. And I and again, it's yet another indictment of the the Tillman Fertitta Rockets that eight months after they signed that guy to a ninety million dollar contract. They trade him for a pick they don't even keep. It went to the Thunder in the Pokushevsky draft so they could play P.J. Tucker at center all year and then dick him over and not give him an extension. Good job, Tillman Fertitta. Uh, I, you know, I was going to say let the hate flow through you, but I feel like given the current environment, I should say let the mild dislike flow through you. You know, that's a, that's, that's a good I feeling. I hate Tillman Fertitta. I hate the Rockets. <laughs> I hate the marriage of the two of them. I am borderline on the verge of going off on like an NC-17 rant, but I want to see episode 21, so I'm not going to say <laughs> another word. Just take it from me. I hate those people. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. <laughs> we can do a whole hour on why I hate Tillman Fertitta and the Rockets. Yeah, I mean, Tillman Fertitta, uh, yes, is an evil, evil person. Go ahead. Sue us. Sue us. That's fine. You know? <laughs> Jacobin has a massive legal budget, potentially. Maybe. I have <laughs> A no lot idea. of lawyers listen to the show. <laughs> Lastly, Jonah, I want to know from you. Um, I have learned a lot of things about my team in these playoffs. I have not learned anything about the Celtics I didn't really know. I knew when the season ended that basically for them to have any success, they would need Tatum to score 50. And he did against the Wizards. And he did in Game 3 against the Nets. Assuming the Celtics do not completes a miracle turnaround and force a game seven or win a game seven. Have you learned anything about your team that you did not know before these playoffs? No, 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 of course not. I mean, yeah. look, you know, that whatever, I, the, you know, Jason Tatum is a superstar, right? You know, and he's so fun I, to watch, man. I guess the one thing I would say is, and he's still inconsistent. He was not great in the first couple games. He kind of got hurt in the second game on a mm-hmm. brutal uncalled foul. You know, because the the league has it out against the Celtics, <laughs> as they always have. As they always have, that's true. Ever since, uh, you know, ask Celtics fans when Reggie Lewis, who we loved, R.I.P., my, my favorite player, died, and the league refused 
to let the Celtics take his salary uh, cap hit off their books, which of course the last thing is that true? Done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he would. They were still paying his. Is they were he, he was still counting against their cap. It was a uh, if I'm Lord. remembering correctly. We should look it up to make sure I'm not full of shit. But I remember that being wow after you know and and loved Reggie Lewis. Uh, one of the the yeah, two, yeah. you know, and and Len Bias too was uh. Yeah. Celtics were very, you know, been snake bitten in some ways over the last few decades. But I, I guess the one thing I would say is that it's clear that Jason Tatum feels like he can go toe to toe with anyone, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a great thing for a 22 year old. The joke in Boston is that Jason Tatum is eternally 19. He's only 19, right? <laughs> you know, so. I, you know, him and Jalen are who Jalen, who is who's just really he's just a he's great. He's great in every way. Uh, those are building block players. Now, they have real issues with Kemba Walker. You know, what is he? He's got a couple years left. That's a real concern. And I love Kemba Walker. I really do. They have questions about Marcus Smart. Obviously, they have questions about some of the younger players and who can who can contribute. I would say. You know, Romeo Langford had a good game, you know, in game three. Uh, someone who was basically injured in first the whole first year and a half of his career. Can he be yeah. a player? What about Neesmith? Are they going to re-sign Fournier? You know, those are all difficult questions. Are Where are you going to find another big? Can Robert Williams ever stay healthy? I mean, he's the other guy who you saw in game one what he's capable of, right? Um, oh, yeah. But, um, but otherwise, you know, it's the same place they've been. They have these two incredible building blocks. And the question is, you know, what can they can they put anything around them? I would not, you know, and I, I do not think I'm putting on my rose-tinted glasses here. I really don't. I would not count them out from being a contender next season. You know, mm-hmm. depending mm-hmm. on how things fall and what they do, there, there's definitely a universe in which they can, you know, compete very quickly but it, it really is it's a question of what what they're able to put around tatum and, and Jalen, and you know and this series just shows how far away they are right now from the elite right in the in the nba because the nets are the yeah. they're the elite and i mean obviously I, you know whatever i this series is another reminder of just how great kevin durant is I, and what an incredible player he is to watch and james harden yeah. i will never enjoy watching to be honest i i just don't i know people are very split about that mm-hmm. kevin durant is just beautiful he, it's beautiful to watch him play basketball yeah it is you know? it is um, so that's what the celtics have to compete against obviously so speaking of elites and we'll end on this note jonah the champions league final of course ended last weekend um the title goes to chelsea with a one nil victory over manchester city I know that Liverpool on the last day clinched their qualification, so you're probably feeling better than you have all season soccer-wise. So this is your opportunity. You want to get your shots in? You want to say anything about Man City? or What Pep? happened in the final? I mean, they were so no boring. They were so no midfielders. boring. Uh, it was brutal. Yeah, so no, you felt like the midfield play? I mean, I you know, whatever. I'm not. No, no. I'm not. I am not. This is not a, a appeal to authority kind of thing, but... I'm very confident that I I 
I'm coaching my, my I'm helping, I'm going to help coach my daughter's soccer team this year. So I've been to her practices and I've watched her play. And like, I think I'm decently qualified to assess and coach soccer at the eight and under level. Pep Guardiola is at a point I will never be. So <laughs> I can't, I can't <laughs> celebrate, I can't celebrate everything else that he's done strategically and now get pissed because he didn't have a defensive midfielder. And like, I don't know whether he needed one or not. Don't um, sell yourself just... short, man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, it was surprising that Raheem Sterling, who has not been in great form the last few months was the big addition to the lineup. Yep. It's not like they lost three to three to three to nil. And, and Oh my God, what was he doing? I think that even though that's the trophy that I most hoped that they would win this year, like I, I can't pretend this wasn't a very successful season. Yeah, sure. Um, I think they're in very good shape going forward. I don't like losing to Chelsea because I, I have a soul, but it is what it is. And it was, it was not, not just because they lost. It wasn't like the best Champions League final that I've ever seen no. in terms of excitement or, or quality of play. I mean, um, that's what surprised me, honestly. That It really is. Yeah. I, I thought at minimum there there was just going to be a lot – that Man City was going to put pressure, a lot of pressure on Chelsea. And on, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and it just didn't – it didn't happen. I You know, I haven't looked like that in, in a while, I guess I thought. How do you how do you think you'll deal with living in a world where Christian Pulisic is oh a Champions League champion? I, I listen the the I, the next World Cup I, is is the United States have have are are they out of the next World Cup? No, I'm not. I I'm totally forgetting. They, I think they have to. I think they have to win now to qualify. Like I think if they had won some game, they would have been in. But because they didn't, and I don't think their senior team played, I think they let younger kids play some game that if they had won, they would have qualified. But they lost, so now I think they have to win. Listen, I, I'm just saying, if if he and they are in the next World Cup, it's going to be yeah. So they're they're right. So they have a, they have a qualifying schedule now. If they're okay. in 2022, it is going to be so brutal. So insufferable. <laughs> I was happy to see him miss that chance that he definitely should have buried uh, during the final when he uh, he got perfectly set up and 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 you know the one I'm talking about and yeah. uh, and missed it left. But uh, yeah, that that's too bad. Look, uh, from my perspective, it was damned if you're do, damned if you're don't. I'm kind of uh, if I'm being honest, I'm glad that Man City cannot claim the level of dominance it would be able to if it won both the league <laughs> cup and the champions league in one season. I, you know, it's just a, it, you know, no one, it, what is the, there's in, in Malcolm X, there, there's some, uh, you know, the movie Malcolm X, Denzel Washington is Malcolm X is leading a demonstration of the nation of Islam outside a police station in Harlem. And like the cop, you know, the police captain looks outside and says, no one man should have that much power. I'm not comparing myself to the cop, definitely not in 1959 I, in New York City. But I are you comparing Pep Guardiola to Malcolm X? <laughs> that may be a first. <laughs> I might be. I might be. You should know, by the way, about that line. Spike Lee has said since the movie came out that he wished, and that line was said by um, the great actor Peter Boyle. Spike Lee said that he wished he had 
made the line no no black man no one black man should have that much power. Wow. But I think it has a lot. But it's interesting, you know. It has a certain vibe the way it's written, and it would have a different vibe if it had, if it had been written the way Spike wished that it had been. But okay. yeah, I can't tell you how consoled I feel to know that the a fan of another global soccer behemoth is comforting himself in the knowledge that Man City is only mostly dominant and not totally dominant. It's like in Jedi when the Death Star is like two-thirds done but not all the way. I like that. I like that you feel that way. Uh, right. That's it, man. Yeah, we've been... this. So this was our, our Keep It Real episode, and I think we did. Please remember to follow us on Twitter at Jackman Sports. Email us thoughts or questions or guest suggestions or... Christian Pulisic gift jerseys for Jonah to Jacobin Sports. Talk about ineffable. At gmail.com. <laughs> Our producer, who always makes us sound palatable, is Connor Gillies. That is all for this week in episode 20. We will see you next week for episode 21. Until then, take care. Bye.